Yo, 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 this is Nancy Giles on the Giles Files, right in tune with my ukulele. We love Ellie Mistal. I can't remember who saw him first, me or producer Nancy Wyatt, but he was on The Beat with Ari Melber on MSNBC, and he just knocked us out. We called each other. Did you see that guy with the salt and pepper, wild-looking afro? His smarts, his humor, even his tweets are kick-ass. You should do yourself a favor and check him out at LENYC. That's E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. Ellie Mistal is a lawyer, a justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, a regular on the MSNBC programs. He's a husband and a dad, and he's got a terrific new book coming out soon. You're going to hear more about that later. You graduated from Harvard Law and then mm -hmm. left your prestigious law firm as a litigator. Yeah, so I worked at a firm called Double Voice in Plimpton, which I, I will never say a bad thing about. They're, they, they are good people. It's a good law firm if you like that sort of thing. Um, I did not like that sort of thing. I didn't, I didn't like being a, a corporate lawyer, a corporate litigator. It wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. um, so my kind of uh, origin story or, or quitting story, if you will, um, well, first I was, I went straight out of law school. I, I finished law school when I was 25. I was working there when I was 26. And when I hit my 26th birthday, I was like, man, if I'm still working here a year from now, I have made a mistake. So now we're at 27 and it's been a year and I'm like, okay, that happened. <laughs> so that's interesting to note. And I was working on this case and, you know, without divulging too many, uh, uh, client confidential details, I was working for a company uh, that was involved in big business. And what, you know, I was representing a company, part of a large, large team representing a company uh, that was involved in big, big, big business as being sued by the government of Nigeria. Ooh. And I was just kind of sitting there one day and I was like, man, the ancestors did not sacrifice so that I could be on the wrong side of Nigeria. <laughs> Right? Like that, that wasn't the point. And I think for, you know, my story is somewhat typical for a lot of um, African-Americans in um, big law firms and, and, and corporate, corporate settings. Like there was a lot of investment in me by my family to put me in the position where I could have that job. You know, a lot of investment so that I could go to Harvard twice um, to get my education, you know, my sister, who's younger than me, you know, she never had a spring break when she was in high school because my mother was helping me with my tuition, right? You know, these mm. kinds of uh, decisions, right? And so at one level, I felt like, you know, I owed it to them to try to like making money. Let's <laughs> 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 just, you know, give it a go. <laughs> but by a second, by on the other hand, like, they didn't do that so that I could, you know, fight Nigeria. Like that wasn't the, that wasn't the point of all of the, you know, love and care and dollars that went into my brain. It wasn't for that. And so while I didn't know exactly what it was I was supposed to do on this earth, I kind of knew it wasn't that. And once you, once I knew it wasn't that, it was like, well, well, whatever I do every day I spend doing this, is like a wasted day of my, you know, short ass life. Like it's just, it's just a waste. 
And so I have to do something else. And so I didn't have anything lined up when I quit. I didn't really even have an idea of what I would do next when I quit. I just knew that being a corporate attorney wasn't for me. Um, and so that's so I quit. And as I kind of came up with the idea that I was going to, you know, try to make it go as a writer, I, uh, I, I had also been reading a lot of Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu, a fifth century Chinese warrior and philosopher whose book, The, the Art of War, is a masterful text of tactics. Sun Tzu has this concept of death ground. Um, that you put your army on death ground so they know that their only way to survive is to win the battle. Um, there's no retreat option, right? And they fight harder, right? And so I kind of was like, you know, I'm going to put myself on death ground. I will either, I will either, I will make it as a writer. Like that will, that will be the only thing that I am technically qualified to do. Um, but that's, you know, that, that goes into my, my story of, of why I, I, I left what I was doing and kind of why I, I, do what I do now. Like there was, there was something that I had to say. There was something that I felt like I had to add and I couldn't say it and add it while being a mouthpiece for clients, you know, and that, that would also kind of apply to even more reputable clients or at least more um, socially uh, justified clients. I mean, there are lawyers who are doing I think we saw, especially during the Trump era, there are lawyers who do just great work, great vital work um, representing, you know, underserved communities. My wife's a lawyer, but she does uh, pro bono work. Um, and she used to do pro bono work for, you know, uh, Im for literally immigrants seeking asylum. Like she's Ooh. worked on asylum cases, right? And that's great and vital. Um, and I didn't have the stomach for any of that at all, right? Like I didn't have... <laughs> There was something about, you know, I took a pro bono case where I was defending a, a, a battered woman who was trying to get a restraining order um, for against her husband. And I'm working on this case and I'm like, if I lose, this lady gets beat tonight. Like that, that's just, that's just what it is. If I don't convince this judge today, this lady gets beat tonight. And we won, thank God, but it was just like, there are people who have the stomach to live at that speed and there are people who don't. And I didn't have the stomach for, uh, I, I didn't have the stomach to have people's actual, you know, lives mm. um, and safety writing on, writing on my persuasive powers. <laughs> That's so amazing that you came to that though as a 26, 27 year old. That's the kind of decision a lot of people don't arrive at until they've been unhappy at a job for years and years and years and maybe have families to support and maybe feel trapped by their job. How lucky are you that you had that revelation? Know thyself, right? Like that was, that's my, that's my superpower. Um, but let's also be real. My path is not easily recreatable because the other kind of special sauce, so like special sauce number one, know thyself. And that's great. Yay, me. Special sauce number two, I'm married. Because as I... As I indicated, my wife is a lawyer. So when I was thinking about leaving my six-figure job, I had the luxury of not also having to think about how to completely downsize my lifestyle, right? Because my wife could still pay the rent. My wife could still pay our bills. My wife could still buy me the PlayStation. Like I was going to have, you know, <laughs> most of the stuff, mm -hmm. right? The difference between me having my job and me not having my job was we had to stay in our one bedroom starter apartment as opposed to moving to a brownstone in Brooklyn. That was the sacrifice. 
You say know your thyself. How did you know that you would make it as a writer? Yeah, so huh, how did I, I didn't know. I didn't know, but I knew what I did worked, right? Like I've, I've always had confidence that what the way that I explain things is useful. And really that comes from my friends. As I was the only lawyer in my friend group. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I would try to explain things to my buddies, like they would get it, right? And, and so a lot of my, early, especially my earliest writing, it was just translating what I would say into print and like losing as little as possible in the translation. And that's yeah. really, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the crux of my style. And I always knew yeah. that if I could just, it, it, that, that my way of explaining things made sense to people. I tell you, I think that's one of the things that we both have loved in watching you, especially watching you on television, is that you can break down very complex legal and uh, political and constitutional, since you're, you're writing this book about the constitution, you've been able to break those things down into ways that people can understand. And one of the things that had in the past turned me off about a lot of these political shows is everybody's talking at this, like the dog whistle. I mean, how you used to use the term dog whistle, like only they could hear what they were saying between the acronyms and the this pundit and that pundit. And a regular person who would tune in would be like, what the hell are they talking about? With you, Nancy and I both are like, you know, we'd be on the phone, we've seen these great, and you have a great sense of humor, which really helps. Yeah. How, how did that, how did you develop that? So there are two things about legal commentators that I can't stand. Most legal commentators <laughs> I can't stand. Lay it and on one us. One is that is that the look, law degrees are expensive and it is a lot of specialized training. And so there is, I think, a, a, a natural kind of desire. Once you have the specialized training, you've been through the three years of your life and you've paid all the money for the degree to show it off, to show how smart you are. And part of showing how smart you are for a lot of people is the jargon, is the acronyms, is the, you know, well, it depends. Are we talking <laughs> about substantive due process or are we talking about strict, strict, like, it, like it's part of the way that you kind of puff up your chest and show your bona fides, right? Um, I just felt very strongly that you needed to go the other way, that like actually the smartest thing to do is to be able to explain these, you know, not, not for nothing, dense concepts and nuanced uh, uh, issues to be able to explain that in a way that regular people can understand it. Because of my just personal philosophy is that the law should be understandable to the people living under it. That's, that's actually kind of an important fact. The second part, when you go to the, the humor, you know, if you think about how people learn things in law school, they learn things via analogy. You know, that, that's actually how we're taught the law in the first instance. Um, but anyway, you, you explain things through analogy to teach law students. Why, if you are a lawyer, would you not explain things through analogy to teach non-lawyers and to explain things to non-lawyers? So I've always been, you know, really centered on using analogies to explain what I'm talking about. And the humor is just, I mean, I'm a lucky, I think I'm a bit funny, um, but you know, there's, let's be clear, there's an entertainment aspect, right? And, and like you, law can be boring. Mm -hmm. Now I don't find it boring. I find it like critical and important and I'm obviously very passionate about it, but I understand that other people find it boring. So I try to make sure that, you know, 
we can at yeah. least laugh about something or, or, yeah. or smile about something um, because it, it's a bit of that spoonful of sugar, right? It actually yeah. helps, makes it makes the jargon go down if you tie to a joke or an analogy or well, That sounds like the basis of your upcoming book. Allow me to retort, a black guy's guide to the constitution. How, what's you, a black you. guy's guide? What do black guys and black gals need to know? Yeah, so, okay, so the, the elevator version of the book is the Constitution was written by white people, white slavers and colonists, and at no point did they even ask what black people or women thought about the document. We're in, in 2021, and they still haven't really asked what black people and women think about the document. So, unprompted, I decided to give my... <laughs> I decided to tell them what I think about their document. I'm a little bit critical of it. <laughs> it's, it look, the, the constitution is not good. It's not, it's not, a, it's people act like it is this sacred gospel, you know, uh, 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 explanation of the rights of man in, you know, on, on a free earth. And it just ain't, it is, it is a, it is a flawed, it is a deeply flawed document um, written as a compromise between white people who wanted to make money and colonize the West and white people who wanted to keep slaves in the South. Like that, that is what our constitution is. Um, people will say, oh, well, it's been updated after the Civil War, the updates, right? Well, we have amendments, so it's great now, right? No, wrong. First of all, <laughs> why would you take a fundamentally apartheid document add in two or three amendments and be like, we're fixed now. That's not what other countries did when South Africa overcame apartheid and had a opportunity for a new constitution. They didn't amend the old African constitution. No, they sat down, included everybody mm -hmm. and wrote a new one. And that is why the South African constitution, not the American constitution, is in fact the constitutional envy of the world. We, the people of South Africa, recognize the injustices of our past. Honor those who have suffered for justice and freedom in our land. Respect those who have worked to build and develop our country. And believe that South Africa belongs to all who live in it. United in our diversity. The other, the other thing that people don't know about our constitution, I feel, um, that I try to ex explain, is that our constitution are only, is only as good as the generally white, generally male people in, ro in robes allow it to be. So you have something like the 15th Amendment, though, the amendment that granted the right to vote regardless of race. And we see that the 15th Amendment has generally, you know, if it was in high school, the 15th Amendment is the kid that got stuffed in the locker, right? Like the, the 15th Amendment is the kid that nobody wants to talk to at playtime. All right. We, we've, we've ignored that amendment through almost our entire history. So tell me again how amending the Constitution is supposed to be the thing that fixes it. It doesn't fix it if you don't have white people willing to enforce the amendments that you pass. And yeah. for the most part, our courts have been extremely conservative and unwilling to take that last full measure 
um, of freedom and equality and bring it to everybody. See, liberals are confused because most people our age grew up with thinking about the courts in terms of the Warren Court, this, you know, this, you know, outsized, you know, institution that ended segregation, right, right. brought forth Roe v. Wade and did all this great things. Welcome to Child Jeopardy! Now please welcome contestant number one! Yo! And contestant number two! Well, hello! Alright, now let's get started! The categories are... What's my name? What Supreme Court? and Republicans who are down with the people. Number one, you won the toss. I'll start with what's my name for 50. I was the 14th Supreme Court Justice from 1954 to 1969. Who is Earl Warren? Correct, number one, it's still you. I'll take what's my name for 100. According to Quiznet.com, this man, a lifelong Republican, led a liberal Supreme Court majority and wielded that judicial power in a badass, dramatic fashion. Uh... Two seconds. Um... Number two? Oh, who is Earl Warren? Exactly! Number two, it's you! I'll take Republicans who are down with the people for 50. Okay. And that's the Daily Double! The Daily Double! And here we go, number two. Both men were Republicans who believed in promoting democratic values. That means equality, fairness, and individual dignity. Um... Um... Um, Five seconds. Uh, who, who are Justice Earl Warren and President Abraham Lincoln? Yes! That's $100, and it's still your turn, number two. Back to what's my name for 200 This lawman's personal standard for deciding cases was, but is it fair? Uh, who is Earl Warren? Yes! Still your turn. What Supreme Court for 100 please? This Supreme Court gave accused citizens the right to counsel, and in a separate 1966 ruling, Miranda versus Ariona, this court made sure that all those accused were informed of their rights. Right on, baby! What is, you have the right to remain silent, if you give up the right to remain silent, anything you say can be used against you in a court of law? I'm so sorry, correct reference, but the wrong answer. No, you have the right to seek an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be provided to you. Uh, number one? What is the Warren Court? Correct, for $100. And number one, you are back in play. I'll go with what Supreme Court for 200 In 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, when the NAACP challenged the Jim Crow laws, this court ruled against segregation in public schools. What is the Warren Court? 
correct. Number two. I mean, sorry, my mistake. Number one, it's back to you. What's Supreme Court for 300? In 1963, this court struck down ordinances that prohibited restaurants from serving black and white individuals in the same room. What is the Warren Court? Oh yeah, baby! What's Supreme Court for 250? 1962. This court ruled prayer in public schools as unconstitutional. What is the court? The court of... Five seconds. Uh... Number two? Is it, what is the Warren Court? Correct! And it's back to you, number two. It's your call. What Supreme Court for 500, please? This court included the first African-American Supreme Court justice and, bonus question, name that justice! What is the Warren Court and who is Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall? Right on, number two! Oh, I'll take Republicans who are down with the people for 250. Who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, although it got jacked by the Reconstructionists, and all these years later, we're still working on leveling the playing field. Uh, but I digress. Yeah, that's who is President Abraham Lincoln. Correct, number two, and that was over 200 years ago. I mean, damn! And now for our lightning round. This is open questioning. Contestants, whoever buzzes first wins the category. This category is what court? What court expanded civil rights, civil liberties, judicial power, and federal power? The, the Warren, Warren Court. Court. Correct. What court protected fair voter representation with one person, one vote? The, the Warren, Warren Court. Court. And what in general was the grooviest court in the 60s and the 70s? The, the Warren, Warren Court. Court. Correct. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh. Thank you so much to our contestants. Good night and power to the people. The people don't realize two things. One, that was a small period in our history, right? Warren Court, the, the, the 15 or 20 years there where Warren Court was really out there like, you know, blasting things um, was an anachronism over the course of our history. Usually the, the, the courts are way more conservative and are erected as a way more conservative institution than the Warren Court. That's number one. Number two, Warren died, you know, 50 years ago. It's been a while. Jesus. <laughs> and all the Republicans have done since the Warren Court is try to roll back the rights and, and privileges granted by the Warren Court, and they have been extremely effective. People don't get that. Like the, 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 the whole, I, I, I'll, I dropped the term the Federal Society, that, that uber conservative organization exists because they didn't like the Warren Court and they needed to come up with a new intellectual framework to fight the Warren Court. And this is what they come up with and they are ascendant, all right? They control the law right now, especially after the Trump era where they were able to reshape the Supreme Court now it's six to three conservative, completely reshape the lower courts. Trump appointed 226 ju federal judges. That's, that's um, just mind boggling that are all appointed for life. Uh, These judges are gonna be making Trumpy rules into the 2060s and 2070s. That, that's, what, that's the world we're living in right now today. So people have to understand just 
part of part of what people need to understand is just what we're up against and how useless a written document is in the face of you know committed white supremacists and racists. There is no law that survives white supremacist judges. That just so how, how it works. How do we get around that? Well, a couple of ways. One, we need to pack the court, just straight up. We need to put more judges on the court. And that requires us to vote for presidents and senators who will also support that, which we generally do not do. Mm. Like that, that, that has to, that's a primary fight, right? So like when Dianne Feinstein, who is an establishment, you know, conservative liberal, right? If you will, like, like an old school uh, on the courts, conservative liberal. Okay. Um, when she's up for primary in California, one of the most, you know, rabidly blue states there is, you have to primary her with a person who is going to support more, a more aggressive stance in the Supreme Court. And we don't, right? We, we don't think that way. Um, uh, by we, I mean the progressive left. I don't just mean, you know, black mm-hmm. people or brown people. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that's a general progressive problem. And we know it's a progressive problem because the, Uber, the MAGA people don't have that problem. The MAGA people understand that the Supreme Court is where it's at. So I do not happen to believe I mean, this is just me. You can disagree. I do not happen to believe that your least common denominator Republican-based voter is any smarter than your least common denominator Democratic-based voter. I might argue that they're actually quite a bit dumber, but that's different. (laughs) Um, You can go to Appalachia, you can go to any truck stop in Ohio, and you ask them about the Supreme Court, and they're like, we got to have the Supreme Court, because, you know, we we got gays kissing on each other. We got to stop that. Who stops that? The Supreme Court stops that. They they understand that, right? Huh. Whereas you go to your 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 base Democratic voter, and you say, "What's the most important thing to secure voting rights?" And they're like, "We got to pass legislation." <laughs> Screw legislation. The okay. first thing that happens to voting right legislation is that it gets overturned by conservative justices, right? So we have to educate our own base voters of what of the power of this institution, this unelected, unaccountable, lifetime appointed institution. We have, to under, we have to educate voters about the power of that institution, how it can frustrate any, the best legislative intentions and how we have to vote for their, therefore we have to vote for presidents and, and senators who will fight to control that institution. Do you think that Democrats and the progressives like didn't pay attention to judges. I mean, I know that while Obama was president, McConnell made it his life's blood to block or not let anybody get on. And then when Trump was on, you know, as you said, over 200 judges, but have, have, has that party focused enough on the judge, on the judiciary issue? Nope. Why? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, it's to me, baffling. It's the biggest it's the biggest fail. It's the biggest failure of the Obama administration. It's one of the biggest failures of the Clinton administration. It's setting up to be one of the biggest failures of the Biden administration. It's just, wow. it's just a consistent failure. You know, I have, I have some thoughts as to why. I mean, I, I know I said I don't know, but that's a bit flippant. I, I have some thoughts as to why. Number one, like I said, it's the Warren Court. The Warren Court just made Democrats think that any old judge would do for some reason, right? That, that as long, that basically as long as you got judges who were, uh, who had fealty to the law, that's all that was required. You didn't have to go and go get liberal judges. You could just get any, you know, any, any left of center judge and things would work out. That's not how it, that's not true. That's not how it works, but that's what they, that's, I think, again, I think the Warren Court has a lulling effect on the entire kind of left-wing party. 
part of the part of the country. The other thing, and this is a bit more more of a controversial point, but the other thing that I believe is that Democrats, especially white male Democrats, are fundamentally afraid of the abortion issue. Safe, legal, and rare. That's what they want to call. They just want safe, legal, and rare. Safe, legal, and rare. That's all they want. Like, like whenever, like whenever we get into a hardcore Supreme Court fight. Hmm. There is an understanding that the right, there's a feeling that the right wing has the moral high ground when it comes to a woman's right to choose. They act, the right wing comes out here and acts like, like the crusade against, well, they act like it's a crusade. Mm-hmm. They act, the right wing acts like they are, they are on a crusade to stop a baby Holocaust. And white male liberals, for the most part, they're just like, well, you know, Sometimes the cheerleader does get knocked up and we got to do something, right? Like they're, they're so afraid of it. And it's mind, it's mind boggling to me. It's partially because the party is still controlled by white men and not Mm. by women, women, A, and women of color, B, right? Um, But it's just, it's, it's a fear of actually engaging with the issue, you know? So like in my book, I do not call the right wing pro-life. I call them forced birth. Mm. because that's what they're doing right and, and once you once you start thinking you know i make an argument that i can i can defend the woman's right to a woman's right to choose on the first amendment the ninth amendment the 14th amendment but specifically the 13th amendment because it says right there forced labor shall be illegal well what is oh, pro-life man. other than literal forced labor by a person for no compensation by a person who does not want to do that work that is a that is a violation uh, of the 13th amendment but you never hear democrats talking about it that way to the point where when the first um woman nominated by a major party to run for president hillary clinton who was an abortion uh, uh, uh defender had to nominate a vice president she found some white guy Tim Kaine, who's who who ran for office on the safe legal and rare, safe legal and rare, safe legal and rare. That's what our current president Joe Biden says too, safe legal and rare. And that's how and that's how it blows up. Because since you're not willing to defend the abortion issue, you're not actually willing to defend real liberal justices, and you're not really willing to fight for the Supreme Court. You're always trying to compromise and whatever. So that's it's, it's controversial theory. It's a little bit of my pet theory, but I think between the lulling that the Warren court did and the unwillingness of white male establishment Democrats to fight for abortion, we see the ground. We see the moral high ground to actual white supremacists and misogynists. We love L.A. Nostal's tweets. Here, okay, check this out. You know what would be unconstitutional? The government injecting something inside you and then forcing you to incubate it for nine months against your will. We're joined now by Ali Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation magazine. We looked at the issue. Because the conservative Supreme Court is like, who's going to check me, boo? All right. Dan Crenshaw needs to sit down before he faints under the weight of his hypocrisy. Talking about the federal government coming into your house and jabbing you with medicine. That that would be a violation. of Because there is nothing more canceling than censuring people for what they voted on or what they said when their job is to vote. It's called the Brandenburg test. It's really it's how we 
determine whether or not speech is protected or unprotected. There, there is funny here, right? And that is that Lindsey Graham wants to impeach a black woman for a legal act. Inaction is not an option. Failure is not right. an option. Joe Biden took an oath to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and Texan, and it's time that he does it. Now, tonight, today. If I only did what Republicans allowed me to do, instead of having a law degree, I'd be shining shoes at Grand Central, okay? Okay, one, this is the last one. One more Ellie tweet. When I have to do the talk with my little guys, part of it will absolutely include being insulting and disrespectful and telling them strategies to keep their cool. It was one of the hardest things for me to learn because I got a mouth and my instinct is to use it. When did you get the talk? When did your parents, your, your dad so, give you the talk? So I was nine and um, we're playing uh, baseball uh, in a white friend uh, house, we're playing baseball and you know, hit the ball over the fence and draw a straw and the neighbor was, you know, allegedly, you know, like one of these grumpy old men neighbors. And so nobody wanted to hop the fence to go get the ball. We drew straws and I drew the small straw. And so I hopped the fence and I went and got the ball. I came back un, you know, unharmed, un, unmolested, no, no problems. And so I'm in the car on the ride home with my parents and I tell my parents this story and my mom goes straight like, oh Lord, oh Lord, the boys are gonna get shot. My dad like slams on the brakes and just pulls over the side of the road and they just lay into my narrow behind. <laughs> you know, my dad, who was kind of a tight wall, was just like, you, for a ball, I'll buy you a ball. You'll, you'll never go to nobody's house without extra balls. So you just don't worry about that. Wow. You know, but just the, like, you, you can't, like, I don't care what your friends say. I don't care if it looks bad. You can never be the kid that jumps the fence to go looking for oh, a ball. That can goodness. never be you. Mm -hmm. um, and because they were yelling, it stuck. <laughs> um, but that was my first, that was my first original. And then obviously when you get your license, it's a whole different life. Oh, that's oh, terrifying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we chorus. So yeah, I'm from New York, which is one kind of version. And then I go move and live different. with my aunt in Indiana, which is a whole different, you know, whole different world. So I'm <laughs> so she you know, she told me all these rules about Indiana. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm from New York. I understand. <laughs> Right. And so anyway, so I, I'm going bowling with my white girlfriend. This is the only time in my life where I dated a white woman. You'll see why in a second. So <laughs> going bowling with my white girlfriend and her two white girlfriends. And so now we're driving home from the bowling alley and I've got three white women in my car. And oh, I Ellie, no. Oh, no. Right? Oh, no. I got three white women in my car in northern Indiana and I get stopped. And... <laughs> The cop comes up to my window. I mean, what I whatever, I turn lens, turn signal, whatever it was, comes up to my window. I roll down the window. He looks in my car, which he hadn't done before, sees these three white women in my car, doesn't say anything to me, walks around the hood of my car to the passenger side where my white girlfriend is sitting and says, ma'am, is this man bothering you? And it was like that moment is just like, I am in trouble. <laughs> I am in crazy. And she, being a white high school girl, just like, I mean, he's kind of annoying. And I'm like, <laughs> do you know what you're saying? Crime is going to get me shot to death. I just pipe up, officer, I'm sorry. I didn't even know what I was apologizing for. 
officer, I'm sorry. And she's like, finally kind of realizing that I'm literally terrified at this moment. Officer, no, it's just nothing, nothing bad is that he's driving us home from the bowling alley. Luckily, she didn't say we were dating or anything. It's just like, he's a nice guy driving us home from the bowling alley. And so he just, I mean, he gives me like a hundred dollar ticket for whatever turn signal thing, but he, he leaves me alone. And it was just like, that was like, oh, 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 it's a whole, it's a whole different world out here, right? So. Anyway. Holy God. <laughs> I, have to, I have to calm down because that terrified me just hearing that. Right? I can't, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood and I don't get into my car and drive around my block without thinking about it. You know, there's not, there's not, there's not been a moment in my life since I got my license where a cop has pulled up beside me or behind me, or I've seen <laughs> one over there that I haven't thought about it, where I haven't tightened up a bit, where I haven't mm-hmm. like quickly checked my speedometer and made sure mm-hmm. that there, there's not a moment. There was one right after um, Philando Castile got, uh, was murdered. Um, I literally the weekend afterwards. I had to go to a friend's house, a college friend's house in Greenwich, Connecticut. So, you know, going from my predominantly white neighborhood to a completely white neighborhood <laughs> um, uh, for, for, for a birthday party. And, you know, I have my whole family, my, my wife, my two kids, I have a whole family in my car. And I am terrified. Like, it's just like Castile is just on my mind. That one really got me because his kid was in the car. And it was just like, I was yeah. a relatively new father and I was just like, just, they shot that man with his baby in the car. Like what, how disgusting, right? So like, this is all on my mind as I'm driving through freaking Greenwich, Connecticut. And I'm just, I'm just looking out for cops. Like I'm just, I'm just, my head is on a swivel looking for cops and I miss a stop sign. And oh. it really like hit me that like traffic accidents are way more deadly than police brutality, like, which is just statistically speaking, I am way more likely to die in a dumbass traffic accident from, you know, missing a stop sign and getting T-boned by a truck. That's gonna be, that's statistically speaking, way more likely how I go out than being shot to death by the cops. Yet the fear, just, just again, the terrorism and the, and the, and the, and the concern of what the cops might do to me caused me to make a real basic traffic accident causing mistake right and it just really hit me like that's that's the problem right that that's the that that's the unquantifiable thing that's happening to black and brown people living under living with these state sponsored terrorist agents roving around it's not just the deaths that they cause it's the it's the stress and the fear and the distraction um, and the choices that lead you to other kind of bad choices. So when I look at uh, Dante Wright, when I look at that situation, um, what, you, what you saw was was a 20-year-old black dude panic. Mm-hmm. You, could, yeah. you could see it as Poor you know, baby. he was gonna- He called his mom. He called his mom. Right? Yeah. He was so frightened. Yeah. And it was that fear that led him to resist the arrest, which yeah. itself should not be a capital, but it ended up being like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I know. Like he was afraid of it. And then, so he tried to get away from it and that trying to get away from it, like it's a cascade failure, but it's a cascade failure that starts with the terrorism. I, it, it's really, it's, it's frightening to feel like if you do what they say, bad things can happen. If you don't do what they say, bad things will happen. And that's the terror you're talking about. Um, and that's, yeah, again, as a dad, my kids are right now eight and five. And it's like, that's the, you know, I haven't had the talk yet. I was going to ask. Yeah. But, you know, I, it's coming. You know, I've had, I've had pre-talks, right? So like, I really freak out whenever they, you know, I, I 
my wife made me stop because I, I laid into him once. We were at the Bronx Zoo, and um, you know, you take your eyes off them for a second, they're gone because they're children, right? <laughs> like, oh no, don't go into the lion bed. <laughs> Um, so, you know, take your eyes, I'm gone, and I'm trying to re, you know, see him, and he's talking, he had gone, he had, had ice cream, and he went to throw it out in the trash, because he's a conscientious little boy, um, but there was a cop by the trash, and so he ended up talking to the cop, who was just standing by the trash, and I'm like, no, <laughs> never do that, you are only allowed to, and this is in the middle of Rock Zoo, with the cop, not that far out of earshot, of course, Ooh. out of earshot, but not, you know, necessarily that yeah. far, um, you are only allowed to say mommy, daddy, or lawyer to a cop ever. That's it. That's all you get. And my wife's just like, dude, we're in the middle of the fucking zoo. Like, shut the Right? But it's just that, that, that knowing that, and you know, my parents had to do it to me and I'll have to do it to, 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 to them. Oh. But you basically have to go into your kids' heads, find their innocence, and rip it out for their own safety. That's, that's what that uh, talk is. You have, to find, you have to find their hopes and their dreams and their innocence and take it from them so that they can be safe. And that is- That's heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm, I'm, hoping, uh, I'm hoping to get to 10. And, and you know, for a lot, the other thing I'll, I'll point out is that I'm o- I probably will only get to 10 because my eldest is tall. Oh my. And you think oh about my. that, like my youngest, who's only five, he's, he doesn't look like he's going to be as tall. And so like, I might get a couple more years with him because he might stay hobbit size. <laughs> right. But once they get tall, that's, that's it. That's, you gotta, you gotta tell them what the world's like. Driving wild. Yeah. Driving wild. Black. Driving wild. Black. Just me and my ride. Is there ever a time that my life, my life is not on the line? Huh. Better keep your hands on that wheel. Hope your face don't sweat. Don't ask any questions. Shut up, shut is up, the safe, is the safe bet. You want to play ball? Oh man, you got a hit. Better watch where that damn ball goes. Because Miss Becky will sure throw a fit. Throw a fit. Gotta teach your babies. The fuzz is gonna blame them first. They're not here to protect you. You see them coming? That means the worst. The worst. Driving while black. Eating while black. Talking while black. Walking while black. Sleeping while black. Knitting while black. Sitting while black. Hitting the lottery while black. Walking the dog while black. Living while trying to live while black. Well, that's our show. Huge thanks to our guest, the fiery, funny, and brilliant Ellie Mistal. 
Check him out whenever he's on MSNBC. You're going to want to look for his articles in The Nation magazine and keep your eyes peeled for his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, coming soon to Amazon.com and to a bookseller near you. Ellie's snap, crackle, and pop perspective will be a must-read for everybody. Seriously, get the book. And thanks to Bridget Ball and Patrick Ball for playing Giles Jeopardy with us as part of our Giles Files players. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, and recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. We'll be back soon with another Bafo episode of The Giles Files, okay? Oops. <laughs> A Huda Media Production.